Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! Up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake! This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy, your voice of choice. The world's only 12-hour strong man on the air. Here on We Love Radio 108 FM. The last on your dial, but first in your hearts. And that's the truth, Ruth. Here I am. Am I here? You know it. It, you know. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy doing the nasty to your ears, your ears to the nasty. Eyes only play the platters that matter, the matters they platter. And that's the truth, Ruth. From the heart of Pittsburgh, you are listening to Justin, 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 Justin Lexi, 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 Lexi on Doing the ying and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity flop. Oh, I have today's forecast for you. Hot! The color for today is black. That's right, black, so you can absorb some of these rays and save that heat for winter. So you want to get on out there, wear that black, and be involved. Also, today's temperature is going to rise up over 100 degrees, so that's a Jerry Curl alert. That's right, Jerry Curl alert. If you have a Jerry Curl, stay in the house, or you'll end up with a permanent plastic helmet on your head forever. L-O-V-E 
I'm proud. I'm ready. I'm hyped for some amp. Most of my heroes don't appear in no stamp. Sample look that you look and find nothing but rednecks for 400 years if you check. Don't worry, me happy. Was a number one jam. Damn, if I said you could slap me right here. Anything is on the table right now. I'm actually really excited to discuss the films of Spike Lee. I haven't watched Do the Right Thing, which we're discussing today, maybe five years. It's been a while, yeah. And it feels very reinvigorating. It was more exciting than probably the last two directors for me. Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Even though I choose Miyazaki as the last thing. Yeah, it doesn't feel that long. He has a really good pace in this, the way he picks up back and forth between a very large cast. Like, I think I forget, like, just how many characters are in this film. Two-hour runtime, it uses its time so wisely. does a really good job of going back and forth. Everyone feels like they get the proper amount of screen time. Like it doesn't feel like anyone's shortchanged or like, oh, I wish I would have saw more of that. It feels like they're just the exact right balance for just basically being those right. kind of that slice of life, one single day from sun up to sundown, taking place over the entire film. Yeah, I had that thought too when I saw Martin Lawrence, and I'm like, he's more buried in this movie than he was in that Big Mama's house makeup that he was in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think he's credited in the opening credits. Well, he probably didn't even make it to opening credits. Some of these people, like Frankie Faison. Frankie Faison. Yeah. I worked with him on Banshee. He was a really nice guy. And then I saw it in the bonus features, a prop master that I worked with on Fences, Kevin. He was third assistant props on this movie. And I just thought it was weird that they were, like, interviewing him as third assistant prop. And I'm like, wait a minute. The fucking prop master from Fences. I was like, that's why they're interviewing him. Because he ended up being Spike Lee's main prop master a couple years after this like a Crooklyn maybe now he's like done all of his films since he's pretty much done all the Denzel Washington movies and he's done a few M. Night Shyamalan movies I don't really know where that exactly fits in that's crazy it's weird just seeing them I think the uh, craziest one is Gene Carlo Esposito Esposito yeah because seeing him most recently he's basically played Gus Frank he's always villains now yeah he's always a bad guy and he's cold and he plays that character bugging out he has so much energy to the point his whole body language is different. It's almost like he has the angles. There's only certain angles where you can see the future version. You can of him. recognize him, yeah. And the same thing, like yeah, those huge glasses that he wears. And it's like I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, what character does he play in this movie? Like I was trying to remember which one. And even when he showed up, I was like, I think that's him. But yeah, the way he talks and acts, I'm like, I'm not 100 percent sure. Like I don't know if that is him. But it took a, it took like a few scenes before I was like, I was like, okay. He gets more screen time than a lot of people too. Yeah, there's, I think this is one of his best cast films. He has another Pittsburgh connection, Bill Nunn. Bill Nunn, Radio yeah. Radio Raheem's R. from R. Pittsburgh. Yeah. Born, raised, and died here. Yeah. Huh. 
I think this is an interesting film where it's complicated in that it's on the surface it seems like a slice of life film but actually it's layers of a discussion of racism the entire film it's the white people who own the pizza shop and them you know going back and forth with the community but then once you get that part back then there's the next layer of the black people having the discussion about the immigrants landing them taking the shop on the corner and they're like well why didn't we get the shop on the corner they start showing like a level of racism towards the koreans who own the shop on the corner within the community like the puerto ricans don't exactly get along with the african americans in the community either and so there's this consistent layer of discussion of racism throughout the entire film with this overlay of this kid who's just going to work at a pizza shop it's like you can tell that it's very relatable to him because he grew up in brooklyn so it's very much like him just discussing his community while at the same time having a greater discussion of racism in the film and that's the thing about spike lee that has always drawn me to him as a director is obviously all of his films have some sort of minor political agenda in them in some way or another he's really good at those discussions but he's really good at layering the films in such a way that you can come out of it and go like oh that was a really cute movie or you can come out of it and go like wow that was a really deep discussion and i think this is definitely one of those movies it's strange though the way that you bring up the political influence because i feel like it's more like an environmental influence it's what he grew up with what he saw he's very blunt about the fact that a few years before they started film like two years before they started filming this movie there was a similar murder of michael griffith i think he was like one of three people whose car broke down they had to walk a couple blocks into this white neighborhood in new york they went to this pizza shop to try to use the phone and they got attacked by all these people and they ended up murdering one of them michael griffith and so i feel like that's kind of where sal's pizzeria becomes the center of the neighborhood yeah i, I mean it, it is it's really the only noticeable thing besides the uh, Korean market across the street from them. Besides that, it's all like apartment buildings. The way they get into the, kind of how you were saying, like, see the, the layering of, yeah, you almost have to, like, peel back everyone's layers to see uh, even the ones that try to present themselves as, oh, I'm not I'm not really prejudiced. Sal tries to say, we, we get it from John Turturro's character immediately that he flat out says, like, I hate coming here. Nobody, we don't like coming here. They don't like us. There's no white people around here. Why should we keep coming? And Sal, like, tries to make it seem like he really, like, loves all these people, but then he even kind of admits, well, why don't we open a, a shop in our neighborhood? There's already like a thousand pizza shops. We couldn't open a pizza shop. We'd, we'd never make money. Like basically saying he only has this pizza place in this neighborhood because it's the only place that he could open one and run a business. Not because he really appreciates these people around him or even particularly likes them. It's just, as he says, the one thing that he can do, which is make pizza because he has no other skills whatsoever to do anything. So he's forced to be around them, but he tries to pretend like Oh no, I, I I like them. They're they're our friends. They're our family. But as we obviously see, that's not necessarily the case. He he still holds the views that the same views as his son. He's just a little more subtle and a little more smart about like not flat out saying it to the people around him until pushed. Right. Like his. You think about it. Where did his son learn this from? It would have to be him. And that all it accumulates to the ending where all of his son's behavior essentially comes out of the father at the very end of the film which is what finally pushes Mookie to his breaking point with everything. It's probably what happens at home. It's funny because the actor, Danny Alo, was trying to fight with Spike Lee that his character wasn't racist. And Spike Lee's like, he's definitely a racist character. And he said that he kept trying to play him in like the most <laughs> likable way. The actor's funny. You know, sometimes people say that stuff, but it doesn't mean that they're racist. And I'm like, I think 
I think it does. <laughs> that attitude is what that character also is supposed to portray in the film, is that he is that... He's a different layer of racism, like you said. Oh, it's, you know, this is how we are. This is... And then all of a sudden it all peels back when Vakim's there with his boombox, and that's, like, the thing that yeah. sets it off. All three of the, like, the whole family is, like, the three different versions of what you could see. Like, you have, yeah, you have Pino, the uh, John Turturro's character that's just flat out, doesn't hide it at all, that he doesn't like them and he's very racist. And then you have the father, Sal, that tries to at least hide it. He definitely harbors those feelings and probably says things in private. While he's there, he knows, like, not to say that. And then you have... Uh, he can't wait to say the N-word. He's that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's that guy. If someone said, you have a pass, he'd be like, oh, thank God. Uh, then you get Vito, who generally seems like he just wants to be friends with everybody, but obviously his family kind of bullies him into submission to keep him from truly being friends. And when he tries to talk to Mookie, who tries to help him out, and that just leads to him and John Turturro fighting even more because he says they're, he's like driving a wedge between them. There's generational racism, which is what the family represents, the white family. It's each generation, you know, it passes down and passes down, but each generation it deludes a bit, right? Like when he's having this, the discussion with him in the bar and he's like, you're going to sit here and you're going to use that word and you're going to talk about this. Who's your favorite musician? Who's your favorite movie star? Who's your favorite whatever? And it's him not seeing that wall, but that he's still, that's coming down a bit with each generation, even though they don't always realize it. It still is learned from the dad. The dad eventually like shows his true colors at the end of the film. You know, out on the world too, there's the generations of the African-American people who suffer from systemic racism who have a chip on their shoulder, but also haven't found the ability to, you know, find strength in their neighborhood, even though they've been a neighborhood the whole time. And then when new immigrants come in, they feel, you know, being stepped on because they've had generational racism. So then you have to deal with that. And you have the Puerto Ricans who have also dealt with generational racism as well as the systemic. Well, think about what Pino says, too. He's like, well, well they're not black. You, you know what I mean. So these celebrities get a pass. Right. It's always when you've heard when they say, oh, he's one of the good ones. Well, what's, what's that implying about everyone else? I do like how Pino, who's like the most upfront about his hatred, he still says a lot of things that people think that they can say that doesn't sound racist when it absolutely does. Well, and then Mookie's character is in the middle of it all where he's really a centerpiece of trying to keep the peace because like the community wants to see the restaurant make changes and he's like they're just who they are just let them be who they are there's nothing you're going to be able to change there and then the community is like no we want to see that change but at the same time while he's on their side from within because he's working for them he's also dealing with racism on his end and that's also kind of bubbling up in him and he's trying to kind of like say things every once in a while throughout the course of the movie everyone's so you know every moment there's a scene where he's kind of coming in and being like hey stop being fucking ignorant trying to teach them something but they just don't want to learn and so it's like right to the end of the film you think that this kid's on your side and he's like you're always part of the family you're always part of the family like that's what he says to him and then as soon as the shit hits the fan he starts throwing the n-word out and starts throwing all this stuff out and it's like i'm not part of your family you just prove that right there that we were never part of your family we were never your community and that's why he walks across the street and throws the, the trash can because he's like fuck it i've sat here all I day like, uh, i feel like it's kind of the opposite a little bit yeah i feel like he's angry because they are all part of the same they are all together whether they realize it or not i do think he's very reactionary he has to make that choice he can't be i guess he could be he could be a totally passive character throughout the entire movie if spike lee wanted him to be i think that's a point though where he has to choose between the people who call 
him a family and his actual community. And at the end of the day, he's got to stand behind his community. So he throws the trash can. I always take that final moment as, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of, he does still, in, at the end of the day, like, respect Sal, which I think is even shown at the very end when, when he comes back to him. But <laughs> throwing the garbage can through the window and kind of like starting the riot is, he is trying to save them. They'd probably kill Sal and his family if he didn't do something. Basically, they destroyed your business, but it saved your life. And then that's when, after he throws that through and the mayor like helps, you know, gets them across the street, sticks them on like that stoop and just says like, you know, just stay there. Like there's, there's somewhere that he knows that tension's going somewhere. They're all, the community's all in a frenzy that they're getting very angry that what's happened and you know, how this is going. And it's kind of one of those, if I don't do something right now like this and give them somewhere to, to vent their aggression, like they'll kill Sal and Pino and Vito and, or they'll, you know, beat them up very severely or do something to them. So it's like, it's, it's your business to save your lives and you know they just he, he tosses that through and they start they start destroying the place and like i said the, the mayor gets in the safety so it's like that's how that's how i kind of like view the ending there is like he he does still like i said even at the end when he goes and sees sal the next day and says like hey i'm here to get my paycheck and and you know sal like makes that show of throwing all that extra money at him and he's like i told you it was only 250 and then he picks up and he's like i owe you 50 dollars now and he's like he's still like he's still saying that like you know next time i see you, i'll give you 50 dollars like he, there's no there isn't hatred at the end he kind of like released all that tension in that act of destroying that place right he doesn't hate like he doesn't he doesn't carry that on and be like be like oh i hate you sal like i never want to see you again it's just like i'm just here to get my money that's all i'm here for i'll see you later i owe you 50 dollars by the way see you next time he is um, way more, he's like more than that because mookie brings the neighborhood together mookie's like that sealer that connects everyone together kind of thing climax too part of it is his decision to throw a trash can through window and this incite this riot, but the build-up to it, I mean, it kind of goes back a few steps. Radio Raheem gets murdered by the police. That's what sets everything off at the end. That's where the climax starts. Right. Watch this thing where Spike Lee was reading, like, newspaper reviews about people that hated his movie. The critics were afraid that people would see this movie, and in the summer of 89, they would start these riots from, you know, being inspired by the movie. Kind of something similar happened with Joker. Everyone thought, like, oh, shit, there's going to be another shooting in a, a fucking movie theater because of this. They were talking about how awful it was that they burnt down this entire pizza business that this guy spent 25 years building. And he never mentioned that the police killed this guy because they value white property more than they value black lives. A strange thing that just it stands true today with... I think even Sal, Sal says like us oh, insured. I'm not. It's not about the Mookie's the one that says that. No, Mookie tells him that because yeah, you know, I was he thinking says you're gonna make out on the insurance anyway. Like you'll, you'll get money. Like you're not losing anything really. And it impresses me too that this movie was actually made in Brooklyn. They went to uh, Bed Stuy. They basically went into that block and kicked out a bunch of crackheads like out of the building. And then they um, built the pizzeria and they built the fake front for Korean market. And then they basically enlisted the whole, like, neighborhood. They started getting, like, rules of, like, some is extras, some is, like, just, you know, picking up trash. And uh, there was a really funny thing with one of the guys was, like, really inconvenient for us to, you know, have to deal with this for the entire summer. I laugh because I'm, like, the things I work on now, there's so many inconvenience fees for those types of people. Like, they'd be making bank off of these people. I mean, this was originally was a Paramount movie, and... And they thought that the ending was too dark and they were trying to talk Spike Lee and toning it down 
Universal came in and was like, we'll do it. And that's why it's the Universal movie. But uh, it's almost primarily an entire black crew. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think the only person that's white that I can think of is the editor. And it's somebody that uh, Spike Lee ended up working with and editing and doing like some documentary type work and stuff like that. So he went to him. And then Ernest Dickerson, the DP on this, and he's... He's been, he's been more in the directing chair lately, but he's one of those DPs where it's just like the magic that he did in this movie is so mind-blowing. The way that they were able to make it feel as hot as it was at any given moment. They shot two weeks in rain and most of its exterior, so that's just another impressive thing. Like, how did the fuck did they pull that off? He lights black yeah. skin well. He understands his people. A lot of Dutch angles in this movie. They kind of go away towards the end of the movie somewhat. I noticed it mostly with mother, sister, and the mayor. Because they're really tense in the beginning. And then they're basically back to being lovers at the end. They go from like the most canted angles to straight up regular, I don't know, straight on cinematography. If you ever want to like understand Spike Lee's style, this movie is like quintessential like Spike Lee. Like the angles you're talking about and then like the it's full of monologues. Which my favorite thing that Spike Lee does are the monologues. When he has a person stand directly in front of the camera. And then have them speak at the camera, like when uh, Radio Over Cream is explaining his That's like. That's my favorite one because then the camera just pulls back and it's back to conversation instead of that hard cut in and out. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's like perfect segue into that. It's one of his like trademarks of his films are the way that he does those little monologues. Those like it almost seems like an inner monologue that's coming out in like full force. And uh, the film I picked is Twenty Fifth Hour, and it has a Spike Lee monologue in it that's like really good as well that's why i picked it and i was like it's interesting to watch like that transition of how he's carried that through in his films like that's a that's a spike lee thing i don't know any other director who like copies that or does anything with that or tries to do things like that like that's a quintessential like spike lee gimmick <laughs> yeah like trademark style which i don't even think it's a gimmick i think it's uh, you know a trademark of his style but like he's it's entirely like his thing like he's been doing it for because he kind of starts that shit with like um girl eight that's where he kind of starts pulling like that stuff a bit the way he introduces his characters and stuff and that and then you know it carries through into all of his films after that like he does those monologues in like every one of his movies in some way or another yeah he's He's still, yeah, even in The Five Bloods, his newest one, he has, like, that whole scene at the end with Delroy Lindo where he's, like, recording himself with a camera and he's just, like, monologuing for, like, ten minutes walking around uh, at the end of that one. Or the weird shit with Chadwick Boseman, just weird inserts of footage where he'd be speaking with the camera. Yeah, yeah, young cat, yeah, he just comes in, yeah, yeah. I feel like those scenes hold so much power. Yeah. And it's, like, you wouldn't think it because it's so simple, but, like, just a camera fixed on a person from like waist up listening to them fully express their thoughts and their feelings at that exact moment and being able to express their thoughts and feelings to the fullest extent that they possibly can like articulate every like thought and every feeling and every like emotion and like visually represent that in like a five to five minute like sequence or like a 10 minute sequence or something like that that's a really like powerful move to be able to pull as a director. And specifically in this one, he uses it to reveal internal racism towards one another. 
Yeah, I love the actor that played the Korean. He's like, we knew they were thinking that shit all along. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's great. Going back to the racism discussion, the Korean's racism comes from fear because he just doesn't know. He doesn't know what's okay, what's not okay. He knows how he's being treated. So he's just flipping it back. But like if he was treated differently in the neighborhood, he probably would have a different attitude. But because he's fresh off a boat from another country trying to establish a business and everybody in the neighborhood doesn't want him there, then he's just got to fight for his own survival and to watch the business across from him be destroyed like that, he's like, I'm definitely next. I mean, that's the only moment I see fear in the guy. He doesn't really seem fearful up until the part where the mob's coming onto his business and he's like, guys, come on. The mayor steps up and kind of like negotiates like, nah, he's all right. <laughs> and uh, they decide not to do anything to, to his business. He was actually really nice. Yeah, after they got rid of Miller High Life, the champagne of beers. <laughs> yeah, how could he? Surpri- how could, yeah, how could you stand up for after they're gonna do that to you. I mean, they picked great places to do business. The pizza shop and the market. They both did really, really well. I like Ria Raheem going in and wanting his 20 Ds. They're like, C? Yeah. D. That's what I think every time I every time I watch I'm like, how many D batteries does he go through in like a month? Well, what do you think that thing takes? Eight? Well, it takes 20 D batteries, obviously. I don't think it took the full 20. It's it, probably it's huge. a couple. I don't know. Well, a minimum of at least half of that. Probably at least like eight to 10. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking it's like eight. So even if he bought double. A lot of those moments that are funny or they're tense and funny. I love the moment where the biker runs over Buggin' Out's shoe. <laughs> you yeah. get this sneakerhead moment. Oh, like man. I, it makes me think of Boondocks. Everyone's just like, oh, your shoe's ruined, man. <laughs> he ruined it. You might as well. Man, that, that shit's fucked up. You might as well just throw him in the garbage. Mar Lawrence, like, you might as well just give them to me. They're just trash now. Yeah, you might as well throw them away. You don't step on a black man's white shoes. Don't step on their shoes. You do not step on a black man's shoes. I love him running up to that guy, and the guy's like, what? And he's like, you ran over my shoe. And he is actually sympathetic. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, man. Yeah. And it's like, you're all the same. You go back to Boston. And he's like, I was born <laughs> in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And they're all like, ah. <laughs> it's such a great response. That guy's such a problem. That guy's a problem for the whole movie. Like, he starts every single problem in the film. No, it isn't. It's, it's entirely his. his fault everything goes down the way it does. No. It is entirely his fault. He's the one that goes in there. He's the one that starts marching around, getting everybody to rile up against the pizza place because he doesn't like that they don't have any black people on the wall, which is reasonable. He's allowed to have that opinion. But why is he so irritable? Why is everyone so irritable? it's just so damn hot, man. Because it's hot. His introduction is <laughs> I just love his introduction when he's like, how much? And Sal's just like, you've been coming in here three times a week for how many years? You know it's a $1.50 a slice like he's so angry that he has to explain that to him well can i get some extra cheese well, and that is another great moment too yeah with the cheese. you know that's two dollars extra that he like and then he pulls out that already pre-wrapped dollar fifty like he's already got the 50 cents wrapped up in the dollar bill like he yeah. knows exactly how much it is and but when like, he grabs the cheese off the counter and sal takes it off of him he's pouring it all over it that's the thing that goes throughout it too is that everybody tries to get him to give them cheese yes. he just he's just stingy with the cheese like we're saying this all could have been voided if he was a little less stingy with the cheese is what we're saying right a little less than yeah. with the wall of fame yeah but he could have put some african-american stuff there but like that's another huge point the street is nearing the melting pot of america he's basically saying you don't deserve to be there because you're not contributing anything to it or i'm the one paying the money for it 
it sets him off in a completely different direction that I totally understand. And some of that stuff that I'm sure is not supposed to be funny, like the close-up shots of like John Travolta. And oh yeah, when it's all burning down at the end. <laughs> Al Pacino. It's a good statement too. It, it shows that I think that it comes back to that Sal thinks that he is part of the community because he's been there for 25 years and they whatever. The community is used to him and they tolerate him, but they don't necessarily like him and they don't feel like he's part of their community but he thinks he is so he's living his life in like sort of a delusion almost that the community is like totally got his back and fine with him but every day the community is coming in and telling him like stop fucking us around or show us that you support us a little better or something like that so it's a consistent throughout the film See, i feel a little different about that too i think that he <laughs> i felt that he doesn't feel that he's a part of that community I think that he feels that he's better than that community. I could see that. I think the people in the neighborhood despise him, too, and they don't see him as part of the community. But the actual thing is, he is. They're all part of the same community. I think that's the big picture. They are all in the community together. They just don't see each other as being... I think I'm describing racism. Uh, <laughs> you're all there together, and you're all important to each other, too. They don't realize how important they are in everyone's daily life. Right. Even at the end of the day, they're surprised that as hot as the day was, that they were managed to sell as much pizza as they did. They didn't think they were going to pull that off. We see a little bit from the fruit and veggie delight or whatever the hell it's called across the street that there's people buying beer, there's people buying flowers, there's people buying batteries. They're needed just as much. They're very important to the survival of what these people do on a daily basis. This movie beautifully captures the 1989 era hip hop scene that was like coming up. He captures the visual, like you'll never get this again, like this accurately kind of thing. Like with the African medallions, that was just like a trend. That was like a super popular trend at that time. And like Public Enemy had like just dropped that shit. So like it was a big like on the radio at that time. And it was like- They made that song for the movie. Did they make it for the movie? Yeah, Spike Lee basically wanted a militant rap song and he like tried to commission it to them to making this thing and i think the first thing that they turned in chuck d was like i don't remember what spike said but he he fucking hated it so we went back and i gave him something that felt incomplete and he said he's like i don't know i didn't think it sounded very good and then i watched the movie and he put it in like fucking 90 million times like i just kept hearing my <laughs> hearing the song over and over again and he's like and i'm just like cringing like i thought you're gonna play it one time and didn't realize it was gonna show it shows up 15 times because one's wondering. It's always, yeah, I always love that moment when they're when they're standing outside the pizza shop and bugging out. It's like, damn, man, you ain't got any other tapes. He's like, you don't like Public Enemies? Like, I like it, but like, it's the only thing you play. Like, could, could you play something else? Like. It's the only thing I like. So he commissioned the song. He shot the music video there on that set. So he didn't just push the movie. He ended up pushing that music, trying to get that song to be as popular as it could by the time that the movie came out. Fight the power. He basically shoots the entire opening credit scene is like a music video for it. He plays the entire song through with Rosie Perez dancing. That's another hilarious thing because he hired her choreography. Like, she did the choreography for it. And I think the music changed for what it was and she wasn't really sure what he wanted. The reason that she ends up looking so fucking angry and mad 
mad, which is what he wanted, was that he made her do that for like eight hours. And she was like, I kept getting angrier and angrier at him because I'm like, I don't know what you want. I'm not doing anything different. And then she's like, well, then I saw the final product and I realized, well, damn, he got out of me what he was trying to get out of me. He was trying to get that, I can't take it anymore kind of emotion. It could have easily been the worst thing in the world too. It's interesting that this movie came out in 1989 and the plot is like the ending plot is that they kill the kid, like the, the cops choke out a black man and kill him and then drag him off. And then here we are in like 2022 and we're still having that problem. One of the politicians said that the guy that actually got the street name to do the right thing way, he said that it's probably just shows how bad they are at creating policies, but everything 30 years before the movie is about the same 30 years after the movie. Not much has changed. It's crazy. Like, you're just like, you're watching this movie from like 1989 and you're like, well, that just happened not that long ago. And oh, that's happening consistently. And you're just like, you have to ask yourself, like, when does it stop? When do we like start paying attention to the systemic racism that goes on in this country? And like, no wonder Spike Lee went from making fun movies because his movies used to have like a bit of a fun tone. So now they're just angry and it's like I, mean, oh, I don't blame you for Black being angry it's pretty fucking funny but also made me cry at the end when i showed that the march that they had at uh, charleston and it's just it's devastating you know have you seen the movie no i need to watch that one yeah, they end it with what's changed and it's the the guy that ran over and killed that girl during that protest and it's just fucking devastating because it's just like nothing is different we're louder maybe or more vocal he made that short video either last year or the year before where he edited together radio raheem george floyd and eric garner like and it all just looked like it could have been the exact same scene so it was like yeah the fact that he was able to edit that together to the point that it's just like yeah look they're literally doing exactly what i showed in my movie 30 years ago except they're doing it in real life and it was fil- it wasn't filmed by me it was filmed by just people standing there like right just as it's happening like this is this is this is real but it looks exactly like i filmed it like it's not the only thing that's different now is that everyone has a camera on them 24 7 to be able to show these things that you know and he even does the you know he has everyone like say the names of other people that have been killed recently uh, which is still like a very common thing of you know half the time when these when these things happen and you know a lot of the particularly like particularly like right-wing channels like won't won't even say like the names of the people that died they'll just say like oh the alleged victim or something like that like they won't even they won't even say their name because they don't want it to and they go over yeah they'll go over the the evidence and they'll be like they just went in guns blazing in the middle of the night or some shit like that it blows my mind too because like one thing that's been proven we've been proven that just recently again uh this country doesn't give a fuck about black people but it really doesn't give a fuck about women. And when Breonna Taylor was shot, we all should have marched when that happened. A paramedic worker during COVID who was in her bed sleeping and had a bunch of police officers and then shoot her in her bed, it took us getting to George Floyd. So when we got to that level, that's when we started marching. And I'm like, three months ago, we were gunning down black women in their beds. And I'm like, and we didn't say shit. And now here we are once a black man's choked out and we're marching. And I'm like, injustice is injustice. 
but like this shit's gotta stop like you've gotta stop with the fucking like not giving a shit about women and not giving a shit about women's rights and you've gotta stop the systemic racism that goes on consistently throughout this country and like as a trans person like you know Roe versus Wade it's like that's women's rights but I'm the next one in line like they're coming after me right after you know that they're gonna get rid of the gay marriage they're gonna get rid of this they're gonna get rid of that and it's like I shouldn't be watching a Spike Lee movie from 1989 and going oh shit's worse now shit's worse now than it was then and that movie shows how fucking bad things were and that we never got better we just got worse and it's fucked do you feel that it's worse or you feel like it's easier to access like oh there's always camera footage now they can't bury like they can bury i genuinely still okay and uh, you know politics are politics but genuinely that we've got to get more younger generations in the political arena like we have aoc in there and aoc is the only person in that whole thing with any common sense when you have a bunch of boomers and fucking the greatest generation still in fucking power and they don't understand how the world's changed and they don't understand how anything works anymore and on top of that we have a bunch of boomers pushing all these republican agendas and not doing anything to stop the republican agendas from the democrat side we're fucked we're fucked as a nation like we're fucked as a people and you're not going to do anything to fix it and i'd absolutely say that things are about to get way way worse because the very idea that they have proven repeatedly that abortion being legal stops people from dying there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people thousands of people who died from from shoddy abortion clinics and shit like that back in the day and you're gonna go in and you're gonna do this you want to have a discussion about religion fine but the whole point of this country is that you're supposed to separate religion from state and like they can't force a religious agenda on us but they're doing it and we're letting them do it you know it's just getting harder and harder to live in this country as a canadian i can get the fuck out of here and every day i think about getting the fuck out of here because this place is going to hell in a handbasket, but I have a fiance here and I don't want to leave her in it. And I don't want to- I don't think Canada is as safe as you think it is. Why, why would you say that? I mean, the political climate, there's people that are exactly like these Trumpers that we have here. For sure, they're all across the world. Right now you got what you got, but politically, they're getting well, in there. Well, our people banned guns when we didn't even need to ban them because you guys can't get your gun violence under control. I don't mean that. You might... We love our. Gun. I mean, it's it's insane that we have the gun problems that we do in this country, and our agenda was to undo Roe versus Wade and keep keep systemic racism in complete flux at all times, and o- overpower these police officers that just go around and fucking don't do anything. Like I can tell you personally, if I'm in trouble, I don't call the police. The police have never done shit for me, and like it's amazing how useless they are and that we keep allowing it i'm sorry what were you gonna say because i can go all day with this shit well we were talking about gun violence and i like that it's not in this movie at all i was watching his press conference for can and somebody asked him like why there wasn't drugs and he's like a racist question thing <laughs> yeah drugs don't play a part in this story he didn't say anything about guns but i was thinking about that right now too sal says that he's gonna kill somebody that day and he essentially does he kills the radio which is radio Raheem's bff he kills public enemy and from that moment on like everything escalates into something that it never should but we do have that foreshadowing earlier in the movie too where the police are just driving by and there's that like slow-mo shot of the guys that just sit outside and talk shit and the police and it's like it's tense and it's a little scary they're not 
Well, it's exposition, too, because you know they're going to come back and do something later. Like, you just know it. They have that good moment uh, with that guy in his car when they shoot the when they shoot the water at him. and, and that, <laughs> Phil Leotardo. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember the actor's real name. But but, uh, yeah, they, they have that moment where it's like, that, yeah, that's kind of like supposed to be kind of another way of showing that they're, that they're not really going to do anything and that they're not really useful as being police officers. Like, they flat out just roll up to the guy and when the uh, when the one cop starts doing like the well who who are they sir and he's like how should I know they ran off and he's like do you know their names and the guy's like I don't know Joe and Mo Joe and Mo what Joe and Mo Black oh so they're brothers <laughs> like he's just like he's just like completely like mocking that guy and being sarcastic like he's like like he's like buddy I'm I'm not even writing anything on this paper like I'm I'm just making this up like I'm not actually gonna file a report I'm not gonna do well, anything yeah, and you like, get a little bit of racism from leave. him too yeah. where he's like yeah you better leave before, before they strip your car yeah you better leave before they steal your car uh, right out from under you like basically tells him like like buddy just drive away we're just gonna drive away like we're not gonna do anything this was a real story which it, it is basically is <laughs> everybody would say radio raheem he was a thug he deserved he's only supposed to be like a teenager or some shit like right that, so but yeah i like how he was inspired by a movie that we'll be covering a little later way later no one's gonna remember by the time that happened uh, with his love and hate monologue Smiley was influenced by the August Wilson play Fences also. Uh, there's a character on that that pops up, and uh, Smiley's the guy that's filling around trying to tell. Pictures of Malcolm X. That guy's great. He's one of my favorite characters. I love the very end when the place is burning down, and he takes his Malcolm X picture and sticks it to the wall, the, the wall of fame. Mm. I thought that was a very poignant moment. I actually felt the film should have ended right there. I was like, that's a good ending right there. And he puts the thing up and just walks away. It feels like it will because I think that's the last shot before it's morning. It fades to black and then, yeah, you get the next, you get the, the opening. It, it is like, a perfect shot with the fire behind it. Yeah. And the, the actual ending of this movie feels like a post credit scene. Like it feels like... It does. Like just randomly, like, like I could see that if this was, like, a modern film, it would take place, like, halfway through the credits or something like that. Like, Luffy showing up to get his money. Yeah, it feels like it should go yeah, to that shot I do like and that then go moment. to those quotes. Yeah, the moment, too, where, like, he wakes up with his woman. Mookie doesn't, he doesn't play. He's, like, he's with his sister, who's Spike Lee's real sister. And he's staying there, but then he ends up with his baby mom, who is tired of his shit. Rightfully so. I mean, I guess the movie is kind of somewhat hopeful for that character at the end that he's going to make a change. He's going to be a better father or something like i mean i believe he goes he goes back home you know I, do you believe that i i thought it was like or is he is he sticking sticking to his like meandering ways he's got what? He, it's what's what he tells sal and sal says like so what are you gonna do and he says gotta keep working gotta keep making that money he's gonna He's going to find another but you job. believe him. That's the thing. You believe him. I believe he's an integral piece of keeping the neighborhood functioning and together. So he's always going to keep that hustle. Because he's always got to be around. He, yeah, he is like the only yeah. character that doesn't have like, I guess like doesn't have like a negative interaction really with anyone in the movie. Like everyone seems to get along with, with him. Whereas we see those uh, uh, Martin Lawrence and his friends, like they get into a fight with the mayor, like... The, the one guy's like yelling at him for being a bum and basically like you know quit quit blaming everyone else for your problems like you're acting like you know the world owes you something and they, they get into a fight with him and then 
they kind of like uh, like antagonize Radio Raheem while he's walking around, like making fun of him for just walking around, listening to his to his one song, and uh, the Puerto Ricans I mean, the get into a fight with Radio Raheem. Antagonistic with his uh, his uh, woman Rosie Perez. Yeah. It's like you didn't come. He's like, I got the uh, I got him to play your song on the radio. <laughs> I dedicated that song to you. Wasn't that good enough? I love the um, radio guy because it reminds me of the um, the DJ from um, Vanishing Point. Point. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. it's exactly who yeah, reminded me of. Yeah, that's that's what I get the feeling every time I see it. And it feels like there is there is like I feel like a lot more references to older films in this than like you might even like first notice. Like like how we were saying, he brings up the uh, the love and hate, his Night of the Hunter. Like he makes a lot of connections to these like classic cinema moments throughout this film. Yeah, he does. When he's when he's standing there looking at Sal, it's like a very western feel, like a western standoff. Yeah. He does like, a lot of cl- like Leone type close ups, especially yeah, that the end when everyone when he when he like destroys the radio and there's those like super tight close ups of John Turturro and uh, and Spike Lee and everybody those close, those the close up of the shoe yeah. with the mark on it. Yeah, he does all, he does all those great like super close ups at, at the end there. That shot of the boombox burning at the very end was so poignant. It was so well done. I really like that shot. Well even when they when they choked out Raheem and he falls down and he falls right into the camera almost. I know. And the only thing that you can see is his, his love um, gauntlet, yeah. On his, on his hand, yeah. Uh, and like praise for keeping the eyes completely open for that too. It just like makes it creepier. Like just drops dead eye completely open you're like damn <laughs> that was brutal fucking Gary come on Gary <laughs> Spike Lee and they're lifting him off the ground too well you were talking about too uh, he did have a partnership too with Nike and this yeah which I know you wanted to say something beforehand uh, I just he used to do the Mars Blackman ads for uh, Nike, and it came from his character from Girl A that he played. So they liked that character enough that he brought it over to Nike, and then it became like a spokesperson for Nike for years. Like he did like those ads for a really long time. He just did a new one pretty recently. Too. Yeah, he just did the one in 2022, which that was like a throwback ad, but like that's so funny to think of him doing like Nike commercials and playing a character in the commercials and doing like comedic stuff and then seeing like where he is now you're just like really Spike Lee I think that's his only like big commercial he's done music videos yeah it's all it's just Nike like he's in it with Nike he's an interesting well he was really good friends with Michael Jordan yeah yeah, he was he um he's really interesting in um how he sticks himself in his movies he does the cameo thing too like a lot of directors do but like his cameos are always unique i always like his cameos do you know his reasoning for doing it no but i like it <laughs> he said that he started incorporating himself into his own movies so that he had that like he had a face to himself too um, like as like an integral part of like the movie like it's, that's all everyone has seen or has seen these actors and they're not putting a face to the director. And um, the actor that, that plays the mayor was talking about how, like, he was one, one of the very first actors that did the black exploitation films 
and he was like, you know, I was representing black people via Hollywood, and Spike gets to represent them via Spike. Like, everything comes back to him, and he kind of gained more control over his work that way by being a part of it. He kind of, now that his name's larger, he's not in... He doesn't keep putting himself in things. I love him. I don't love him in Summer of Sam when he's the reporter at the riots. <laughs> that's the best. He's so good. Yeah, that's another that's another one where like that that real life event clearly influenced this movie too. Before we went back to another like, you know, hottest summer on the record. Uh, he's an interesting director too, in that all his earlier works, which makes sense are like african-american films like their films targeted at and about the african community and they predominantly feature like african-american casts and it's not until about summer summer of sam where you see him tackle a subject that isn't like black subject matter and he just talks about like a serial killer and what's interesting in that one is that you wouldn't think that his ability to capture the punk scene so flawlessly, like he he was able to capture stuff about the punk scene that like people don't even realize is like important to the punk scene. Like he's a great filmmaker. He he pays attention to what's going he, on around him. He yeah, has a good eye for replicating and like things in the real. He did world. a really good job representing the Hispanic community in that movie. Like that was a real breakout film. Like for like whenever being a fan of his growing up and watching that and being like holy shit like i would never think spike lee would do this just knowing his discography up to this point and after that uh, it's all so gravy there's only there's apparently only one movie that is not a spike lee joint <laughs> yeah, just that one there was only one movie and it's it's not inside man no, which one was it old boy no, old boy <laughs> Old Boy's the That's only one he didn't consider to be like his his own work. I guess since it's a remake, yeah, I could see like him not like it didn't come from him. Yeah, it was just too close. And before that, if you remember, it was Spielberg and Will Smith before he moved in with Josh Brolin and Elizabeth Olsen. It's really fucking weird. Inside Man, like Inside Man's interesting too. We won't talk about it, but it's maybe his most mainstream film and like I remember that being the one where everyone was like calling him out for being like a sellout essentially and I think that's why I think that's the movie we thought it was when we were you know a few episodes ago or whenever we were talking about it beforehand um but I guess he didn't distance himself from that one like his humor and his style is still in that even though it is a larger budget, can, it's just it's it's old boy. He's like, nope, yeah. old boy. I can't take. Can you be as old as him and as far into his career as he is to be a sellout at that juncture? Like, I guess we can all sell. You can it. always be a sellout. Yeah, I guess. I just like, I would never think of Spike Lee as a sellout, even when he started working on his more higher, you know, commercial Hollywood kind of films and stuff like. I think he's just a phenomenal director and that like in his older age I felt like he started tackling more high level but like serious like adult subject kind of like kind of like he did like the African American equivalent of like 
um, Clint Eastwood, like started tackling like a lot of war movies and a lot of like just like old guy subject matter kind of thing and like doing his own thing, but like making like higher, less of that fun Spike Lee kind of like kind of like what we just watched, the polar opposite I mean, of it's that. Still there. Like, Do you think it's still it, there? Uh, Miracle at Saint Anna was a little. That was hard. I couldn't get through that one. A little, a little, a little harsher. Like a little bit more stuck in reality. And when you watch the Five Bloods, he, it, it, it the subject matter is very, very serious. And there's some moments in there that are like pr- pretty heavy. But there's a lot of really fun moments too. Like there's a lot of jokes. It's a two and a half hour movie. There's a lot of times where it, it is. It's just fun. It's just guys hanging out and having fun. And then there's moments where they're like, shit, we gotta go back to our serious Vietnam personas and take these people on. And there's a moment in that movie too where like it rang kind of goofy. There's only one moment in that movie that rang goofy to me, which was a scene with the um, landmine. It was just such a goofy like way to save a person that I was like, ah, okay, so don't buy that moment, but I'm not gonna let it ruin the whole rest of the movie for me. And Black Klansman, I highly recommend. I meant to watch it. It was on my list. They got they took it off of streaming, so I just never got around to it at that point. But I really want to see so it. Fucking, it's so fucking good. Uh, Denzel Washington's son, who's probably there for, ne- for nepotism, is actually a very good actor. And the subject matter is hilarious that he infiltrates the KKK uh, as a black guy, and he and he has to enlist Adam Driver to be like the face of of uh, bigotry and hatred. <laughs> like I'm the voice, you're the look. And j- there's moments in that too. That guy that plays like the lead racist, not Topher Grace's character, but um the the main antagonist in that movie uh who was in uh, what was that show called new amsterdam like oh the lo- fun lovable guy that was the big racist in black clansman uh he sharpened it too like almost everybody like, he he gets adam driver i think is another amazing actor so he really just soaks them up and i don't know he, he did two movies i think before do the right thing and I can't believe how many people he has in this movie that are, like, how we were talking. This is the first thing we were talking about on this episode. They're just all fucking, they just, a lot of them exploded in a bunch of different places. Uh, and that, that goes for the, the crew as much as the cast. There's lots of people that ended up, like, blowing up and making movies. And, like we said, Criterion, great great edition it's great part of the collection it's, it's, it's perfectly reasonable it's, i know i was like going on about why <laughs> why does he get one but not you know corin but this movie deserves it all day corin still deserves it though and i'm gonna stand on that pedestal as hard as i can go put corin into the fucking criterion collection all of you got john walter waters just come. i don't need him he makes smut you got him you got uh, it's fine i like waters what do you think spring breakers was we all said at the end it was it was, <laughs> it was a masterwork of filmmaking it was a masterwork of <laughs> 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 
Chuck's nodding his head. He's like, yeah, it is, definitely. That's I think what Black we Devil Dolls are a master of the smut. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who, what is? Black Devil Doll. The greatest oh, movie yeah, ever made. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen Black Devil Doll? No, I know what you're talking about, though. No, I've it's, seen, it's so great. I've seen the VHS that they released of it, though. That's like got one of those like big fat extra cases from like the eighties. Even though it came out in like the two thousand. I think uh Martin Van Peebles was like I don't know if he was like a producer or just somebody that was like invited to this set. But I remember him there's a there's actually a clip on the Carcarian of him trying to like talk to the neighborhood. And if I'm paraphrasing but he's essentially like, will you shut the fuck up? I've earned my right to talk. That's why I came here to talk to you guys. So cool. I still got to dig into that set. That's another thing that I, I haven't watched. I don't think any of his movies. Mario Van Peebles? Martin. Marvin. Oh, okay. Melvin? Marvin. There is a, Melvin. There is a Mario Melvin. Van Peebles. He was in the movie Solo. That's like his son. That's his son. That's his son. Yeah. He did New Jack City. Yeah. Melvin Van Peebles. Ever see Solo? The one about the super soldier? I've seen Free Solo about the guy that's no. you know, Those people are idiots. <laughs> I've seen Solo, God. a Star Wars story. Free climbing is so fucking dumb. It's like, I want to die. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, what are you, a Thundercat? You're just gonna climb up the side of a fucking mountain. I was learning I was listening to one of my podcasts about like a race car driver and I was learning that there are like those people that do the extreme shit like jumping off buildings and shit like that like they just yeah the the ones that do it with no fear there's actually like something in the brain that's broken that doesn't allow them to experience the fear receptor like it's. I think we all have something broken in our brain that probably pushes us in a different direction. Because by not being scared, it allows you to take the risks that would normally your body would normally react to, like naturally. Well, that's even what adrenaline rush does to you too. I guess it's. It's supposed to help push you through something that fear would like lock you into. Yeah. That's why Mookie picked up that trash. <laughs> And I, I didn't see it, but he did. Uh, he did another movie where he reprises that role, although I think it's a cameo. Did it? He comes back as Mookie. A Red Hook Summer. Oh, okay, I know that movie. There, there's a couple ones I didn't see. I did not see that. I didn't see Chirac, but I did watch his last two. Did you see his documentary for little girls? No. About the girls that were killed in that church. Honestly, uh, is that the when the levee breaks? That's one too that he did. So I, I don't think I've seen a single documentary of his. Uh, the only movie of his that uh, that I can think is would be close would be the biopic Malcolm X, mm. which I do like a lot. And it was only a matter of time, I guess, before. I mean, he goes back to this movie too, where it's like, who was right? Maybe nobody was. Maybe neither person was right. I think but Spike Lee. The, the idea of like, go I was ahead. just. Gonna, I think Spike Lee leans more towards the teachings of Malcolm X than he does Martin Luther. He he does, but I also feel like 
that can always change. I don't feel like he's always with Malcolm. I think he is in this movie. Uh, you'll be surprised. I think he is with Malcolm X. I, I feel like he wants to go the, the peaceful route of, of Dr. King, but it's essentially like, you know, you got a snap in it. It didn't work. And I feel that this is him. This is a paraphrasing for him. And I feel that Malcolm X is the way that Malcolm is the way to go. You're basically going to, we'll have that at Quoco. You're going to like essentially snuff yourself out by not doing anything. You need to take some sort of action. You got to get yourself out there. And that's kind of like what's happening with everything that's being recorded on everyone's cell phone. It really sucks, but it's like they're stirring people up and they're getting people angry, rightfully so. And that was a, something that was actually the people were able to, like a small group of people were able to put out there to the world pretty fast. It's interesting when you talk about the cell phones. Like, I remember growing up without the cell phones and then the first time that people started like taking pictures and like recording people and it seemed like initially when all that started it was so like exploitative and like voyeuristic and now with the way things have gone it's turned back around and now it's our defense against what's being done to us like without the having the cameras and the phones everywhere like we have those opportunities to clutch, clutch, catch the police doing things in the act. We have the ability to have right, it. I even have like a dash. Yeah. Thing, you know, like I have, there's cameras, there's camera in front of my house. Yeah. There's camera in my house. Like there's stuff that is there that would maybe protect me in that sort of scenario. Or something but not if it's Ring happen. because Ring is evil. It isn't Ring. Good, because Ring is actually yeah. genuinely bad. <laughs> it's not. Actually, the police can directly tap into any ring, ring device they want, whenever they want, however they want. They have full legislation to do that. I don't think, that, uh, from what I was reading, I don't think that they do unless it's something that you allow. If you allow access to like your neighborhood to view it, then they can. No, there's like there's, there's a clause specifically in Ring's thing that gives them direct access. It's only the Ring ones. It's not the other ones that I know of. But Ring is Ring is problematic. But uh, anyway, anyway, um, it's interesting that like like in that same scenario, going back to do the right thing. If someone had a camera, that would have changed that whole entire thing. You know, and there would have every one of those people on that street corner would have been recording what was going on. So like. You needed the technology too, because it's like in that scenario, if you did record it, just like, are you able to even get it out there? You know? Right. Or does the the power keep you down? Or if you if you choose to live stream it, will they shut your live stream down, or will they ban your video for some reason, copyright something, or who the fuck knows? That was very graceful. So yeah, like it's interesting, like how when those cameras came, you think that they're invasive, but also like now they're our frontline defense and keeping us protected from from the people who are supposed to be protecting us. <laughs> yeah, they're both. They're kinda I mean it's a completely different subject than really what this what this movie's about. But I guess it's close to the close to that community aspect where it's 
It's also it's safety, but it's also invasive. Right. Theatrically, you're getting this very emotional experience that, at the time, really didn't get to see. No. I mean, the story that he based it off of, the, the Michael Griffith murder that happened nearby a couple years beforehand, it was followed in the news, and you got the stories. So you got the stories televised, you got the stories in print, but you don't get the, I mean, now we do, like you said with the cameras, we are actually seeing these people dying in real time at the police. And in 1989, but this film was like as close as you were to actually watch doesn't, and seeing. Doesn't Rodney King happen that. after this movie comes out? Like Rodney, Rodney King happens after. So yeah, and that's 92, and that was recorded. And that was like the first time that shit had been documented. Yeah, and it made it to the news and got out and everything. Right. So maybe cameras are an asset to the African-American community to keep themselves protected along with other means in the, the grand scheme of things as long as their footage can get out after <laughs> said incidents occur true and then also like important to this this story they shouldn't have no but everything's built up again but you know i'm at a point in my life where even i'm looking at buying a gun so and i shouldn't have to but that's the world we live in isn't it yeah i guess <laughs> i'm fun tonight kind of does reflect that idea of just being pushed being pushed too far that you know everything that the dreams keeps taking over i mean i know it's depressing to say but it's not gonna get better it's going to get worse before it can get better but how much worse is it possibly going to get is the question we need to completely reform the police like that's been a discussion forever, like, disband the police, reform them, whatever. But, like, genuinely, like, you need to take the police and you need to create divisions. And you need to have different types of, not even officers, but different types of people for specific agendas. Like, don't have a cop go deal with the homeless. Have a social worker whose job it is to work with and understand the homeless and has a background and a list of places they can send these people and help them and give them the tools to get them off the street. You know, like... I also think the, the biggest fruit... I also think the, the biggest fix to the education. Education, they don't... You have to educate people. And I think that you get a lot of, like... I know Chuck, you know, still living there. These people that stick around, you know, don't really go anywhere. And... They just basically believe what they hear. And it's kind of like what we have in the movie with, with Sal and Pino, where it just gets passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, generational racism. And, and you look at our state, just look at Pennsylvania, and it's like, it makes us look like a huge racist state when we're red throughout the whole center. But honestly, the population is not really out there. They're really fucking spaced out. There's not... At nearly as many people there as in the, the cities but it's strange because it's also like when you why do you think the cities are uh, may, maybe not necessarily like always okay with every single person in the world but why do they tolerate more Be because they live with these people they're yeah, actually experiencing these well and they, they have the, the but there's different education these people yeah. was in all yeah like <laughs> 
Well, it's just that wine. It's tighter melting pots. It's more exposure, different cultures, and different people, and different whatever. Yeah, because you get this segregation, and and that's where I think people get these ideas of just ideas in general. They get these ideas in their head of they get these stereotypes in their head, and it it just it is it is weird. I mean, and I won't I won't even I won't name people on here, but you know, like I know people that. You know, I. They are. I work with. And they wouldn't. And you know, they wouldn't think they would. If you ask them, they would sound just like yeah. Sal. They would well, say. They're like, no, 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 no. I work with a girl who's 20, and she's from Pennsylvania, and she's shockingly racist, and says racist things. But when I look at her and I have conversations with her, she likes me, and she's my friend, right? And I. I find myself with her and I'm like, you say this shit, but you're friends with a trans person. And I'm like, and not just a little bit, like, you generally are like super cool with me and whatever. And I was like, it's very clear to me that your racisms and your ignorant statements that you make come from your family. They don't come from you. And that if you were to be separated from that environment for some time and actually sit down with like a group of people and have a conversation that you could probably shift your ideas on that kind of stuff very quickly and very easily but because of how you grew up and because she's from such a tight family like her her aunt takes her to work and her mom picks her up and like they all like live in this tight bubble like she's not able to like just come out of that and have that conversation and it's like there's this part of me that wants to like try to help her but also like I realize like I'm trying to undo generations of shit and it's like you can't necessarily undo generations of shit but I don't think that the new generations coming up necessarily have these ideals and I think that I mean I think you can but oh yeah for like sure but I do like your thing where you're like, like where I'm at in Pittsburgh it's it's like they want it's a wannabe progressive place. And it's, it's constantly on the defense. Well, I don't really, really think that the, anyone outside is ever going to affect the city. But Chuck, just a little bit farther south and where I grew up too, it falls into that category of shockingly racist, as you said. And I've had people talk to me that, you know, aren't from the city, aren't from Pittsburgh. And, you know, when things happen, like, you know, Pittsburgh truck back, or it's like, we had an incident where a police officer, like, beat the shit out of this kid in school, like, a bullet barrel. And he was working on a movie with us. And, like, he was working with security on the movie that I was working on. They fired him. You can do your research. I'm not doing anything. And I had a, a friend say, hey, what the hell's going on in Pittsburgh? And my answer was like, well, we're, we're shockingly racist, you know? <laughs> we, we are absolutely, like, it kind of disgusts me that, that they haven't evolved. Because my mindset as a kid, I grew up being told that, you know, basically like, we're all the same. And I was like, all right, I can see that. And I definitely think there's degrees of racism to everybody. But, like, holy shit, the people that I thought were, like, 
like, you can't say that. Well, now they live in a time where they feel that they can say whatever they want. And I'm like, where did, you, where did this come from? I can't even uh, fathom it. But it's sort of like, it needs to be in your face. And that's what this is. Well, I live in... Be I live in Denver, and I talk talk about it, and I, I say like I feel bad, but also like it's nice. But like since I started my transition, like I've had no misgenderings, no persecutions, no like it's all been very smooth sailing for me. And it's like yeah, but that's because you're in Denver. If I'm like to go outside of Denver though, it's like red as fuck. Like, Colorado has some of, like, the most mass shootings, like, in this country. We have some of the most famous mass shootings in the country here. Like, we have mass shootings constantly. We have, like, racism constantly. We have all kinds of, like, it's a red state outside of this. But because of Denver being what it is and as big as it is, you know, it keeps the whole state blue. Even though the only progressive area in pretty much all of Colorado is the Denver prefecture. So it's interesting in that regard, like to see, like like you said, like the urban centers, like they're just so completely different. But like, how do you change the outlying areas? What do you do to fix those problems? How do you trickle down? Like, yes, I know it's a predominantly white, you know, white community, but you guys still need to understand like X, Y, and Z is the way to kind of shift your process. Are you guys both from PA, like you born and raised? Yep, far right now. <laughs> That's interesting. I love Pittsburgh. I thought Pittsburgh was great. That was like my favorite part of going to school there. Cause I only got to go to school there, so I only spent like I have I have a good knowledge of it. I used to I call Pennsylvania America's garbage dump because there's always like rusted out hulls and like shit in people's fields. Everywhere. <laughs> I was like, I know why all the zombie it's movies. Not even are all, here. It's not even that bad. Like you know, it's really bad where your school was. Where, Dude, Manesson. Manesson is is a trip. The fact that I even lived there, I can't even believe. Because you go over to Bell Vernon and you're like, Bell Vernon's like right here, and it's like a normal whatever. And then you end up back in Manesson. It's like, let me go back to my dilapidated hovel with the yeah, you're like hearing with the fifty foot spire of fire coming out of the fucking tower twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, that, that is literally a dilapidated, empty town. There are three businesses in there that are functioning. The school, the pasta shop, and, like, that's it. And there was, like, a big a bar that sold alligators of all fucking things. It's, like, baby alligators. I was like, what well, fuck, where is this place? And that's what I like, too, about this movie. <laughs> like, this setting is in such a small place that... I mean, I know it does. it takes place in Brooklyn, but it's literally a street and what it boils down to is that this could happen anywhere and it happens all the time in little communities too it doesn't just happen in big cities i haven't seen all of his movies i don't know if i will be able to watch them all for this one but i think i'm going to try to pick up a lot more that i haven't seen before i have not watched the next movie but i've owned it a little bit which is chuck's pick Chuck, you said you've watched it before. What is Chuck's pick? Uh, it's another Criterion. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's his only other one. I think he just has the two. Uh, but yeah, we're doing Bamboozled. Oh, that movie's so fucking good. <laughs> That's one of those movies that they gave to me when I used to work at Suncoast. 
because my my boss would get like free you know demos to try to get people to watch them and then talk about them with people in the store and she fucking never watched any of them so she's like here take the demos so i'd take demo ho- tapes home all the time and that was one of them and i was like fuck yeah that was such a good movie that one and tigerland are probably like the two best movies i got out of that i mean i'm sure i could talk more about this movie forever there's a million things to say it's a layered film but i'd be it's like an onion i'd be more i'd be more interested to know i guess since this filmmaker was Chuck's choice kind of like why he wanted to dive into it or like where you know where his favorite movies are and like why what why would you what makes a white metalhead from Pennsylvania want to talk about Spike Lee (laughs) oh I am I am a diversely interested person I don't know I always I enjoy I enjoy pretty much all of his films that I've seen um I think it's just good to get I think that's the biggest problem is uh, for a lot of people is I don't know they they have a problem with like empathy or seeing things from a different perspective so that's why I feel like it's something you need to like everyone should do like you should watch watch movies by Spike Lee if you're white and like see the perspective and then maybe like see you know why why people feel the way they do about things you know to watch, uh, you know, watch Japanese films to, to see a different perspective on the world. You know, listen to listen to music from different people and different cultures. Uh, you know, Public Enemy is one of my favorite artists. I uh, I always love all their music. I think my favorite my favorite song. Another one related to to Martin Luther King is uh, "By the Time I Get to Arizona," which is an entire song about how uh, John McCain and the government in Arizona refused to make uh, Martin Luther King Day a national holiday because they're just racist. Like they were the, they were one of the last states to hold out and just would not make it a holiday in the state of Arizona. Um, but yeah, it's like you gotta you gotta get out there and you know. Yeah. I mean, their song "Fight the Power" yeah. calls out Elvis and John. Lee. Yeah, that song yeah. is so good. It's, it's it's a good one. So it's like. But that's uh, that's why I like to I like to watch films uh, from you know someone like Spike Lee or someone that just someone that doesn't look like me. It's the same thing of you know when people say like, well, "Where's White Pride Month?" It's like, oh, that's been every month for like ever. Like it's always been White Pride Month for a long time. Like maybe watch a movie by somebody else, or maybe like read a book written by somebody that wasn't a white guy or a white woman. Like. Maybe learn someone else's perspective on the world and you might uh, educate yourself. That was something that like everybody in my life was saying to me when I told them we were doing this month. They were like, oh, you can't talk about Spike Lee. And like, even on my old podcast, like I wanted to talk about a lot of black cinema because I, I love, love black cinema. Like it's like one of my go-tos. Like I watch tons and tons and tons of like african-american directors and films and like i'm really 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 into the culture and i was like i'm very knowledge on it and they were like yeah but you're a white person you can't talk about this stuff and i was like why and like i hate that idea that because of our skin tone like we're three white people we're not allowed to talk about spike lee and i was like that's unfair like He's a brilliant filmmaker. We have a lot to say about him. I believe that we're all educated and cultured enough as people that we can have an educated conversation about racism and not step on toes or go over lines. If anybody's going to be offensive, it'll be me, quite frankly. So 
Like, it's just one of the... I don't even think we're nervous about being offensive. Like, my attitude has always been if I unfairly on this episode, no one can speak up against us. But in the real world, if I have an idea that, you know, you can, I can say things that I think are totally fine and totally offend somebody, but I'm also a human being where I think I can grow and I can change. And that's what I always strive for. But uh, like any director, you're getting our perspective. We're basically breaking apart somebody else's perspective. So it's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting to be to watch a movie like this and you have to likely say that he's showing us how he feels and how his characters, how their decisions are defined and, and, and what they do. And then we look at it and I like, I think he said something about this movie where he only ever gets asked if, if uh, Mookie did the right thing at the end by white people. He says he's never been asked that question by a black person at all. The question we brought up earlier were like, well, when people bring up the, the burning of business and that that wasn't the right thing to do, white Right. Um, but I, I agree with Chuck. It's like, why do I, why do I watch anything? It's like, it, it to get some sort of perspective. And if you're not getting the actual perspective of like, what's really going on you're, you're, you're at least getting something that uh, that director is able to translate because uh, Spike Lee was even saying like how Spielberg did the purple color, uh, the color purple sorry Spielberg did the, the color purple and he's like you know nobody had a problem with that and that was that was his his point of view and I think it's strange, though, that it's like, I've heard people call Spike Lee out, and they're like, he, he just hates white people, and if he does, and and there is some sort of hatred that he, he, he wants to talk about, which I think he does somewhat, why do people continue to work with him? I think it falls back in that perspective that Chuck's talking about. I mean, film, film is a medium... That if you're, I guess if you're, I don't want to say educated, but like, you know, it's supposed to evoke emotions. Like, film really should take you through a range of emotions. Like, it should do that if you're dumb. Right, exactly. And the thing is, is that when you go through emotions, emotions almost will in some ways help you understand. Because if you're feeling it yourself, or you're feeling some degree of it, or it's evoking a feeling in you then it should also on the other side of that coin help you to understand so as you go through the journey with the community that we're watching in this film you should also going be going through the feelings and emotions of the community because you're getting so many different perspectives like i said like when we started this like this movie's nothing but like layers of racism and it's like you start feeling the way the different people in the community feel, and then you come out the other side of it, it should give you perspective. It shouldn't just make you walk out of it and go, why did, why did, why did they burn that poor man's restaurant? It's like, you shouldn't have, that shouldn't have been what you took away from it. You should have taken away from it, like, the emotions and the feelings, and, like, it was a chance for you to experience, you know, some other perspectives and stuff. And it's like you said with the directors, I like foreign films so much. I don't like to see 
remakes of foreign movies done for Americans, I'm like, just watch the original because you're never going to capture like any of the feelings or the culture or any of the aspects of it when you start adjusting it for white audiences. And if that's what your goal is, is to adjust it for white audiences and the majority you know you're not gonna you're not gonna get anything out of it you're not gonna get that same experience you're not gonna see why that film won awards or why that film did anything because you're just not gonna gain that from it so you know i think some people have a harder time with you know other things like like certain emotions or they're they're not quite at certain levels and stuff but if you can force yourself to keep going through the process of watching content like this and understanding and taking those emotions away from it and having that emotional experience and actually like understanding it then it can actually help you understand other cultures like don't watch movies to just learn about other people's shit but they can definitely help you understand aspects of that in their life and their culture that's kind of long-winded but and like chuck you'd, you'd agree too that they're harder on spike because he enlists a, a largely african-american and cast in most of his, his movies, but it's just it just falls down to perspective. Like it, it's his, it's his point of view. He's a filmmaker. He's a filmmaker like any other filmmaker, and he wants an authentic experience what, too. What would? But yeah, and it's like I don't think he sets out. Do, do you think that he sets out to make people angry? Because I I don't get that. I I feel like if he's angry, it, maybe it. Well, I know you're asking Chuck this question, but like another movie that we're going to be covering is 25th Hour, and 25th Hour is a it's all white. It's a whole white cast. You had a great pick. You had a great pick there. But I picked it because it's unique for him as a filmmaker. Like I don't think I think it stands out amongst his films. I really do. And I, I think like you know going back to that whole statement of like he predominantly only worked with, but like. Later on in his career, he starts working with a multi-faceted cast and crew of people. So I think he starts to like change his perspective as well throughout his own career in a lot of ways, like understanding things on a higher level. But back to <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you think that he's like unfairly like pigged as the black director? I don't really know how else to put it. Like he he takes the heat for something that's he shouldn't have to. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's. I don't, I don't think he's trying to, like you said, like make people angry. I, I think it is just, uh, you know, he's trying to get an emotion, uh, and you know, that just happens to be anger sometimes. Uh, but I feel like for a lot of it is, uh, a lot of it is he's putting out movies and he's doing things that you know nobody else is doing or no one's making those type of movies for that audience um, kind of like uh, you know there, I guess there is like that stereotypical like like black film which is like I feel like that's like what Tyler Perry gets the peg does is just like oh he's just yeah. he just makes movies for black people but it's like I know a lot of white people that love Medea movies like it's not it's just because he films them with like predominantly black casts and you know features uh, a lot of you know black people behind the scenes he gets labeled as oh he's nothing more than just a black director like they, that's all they refer to him as whereas you know he's he's a director but he's just do he's just filming what he knows and what he 
when he wants to film. It's like no one, you know, a lot of people will say like the Coen brothers are Jewish directors because when they feature, you know, Jewish characters or stories, like something like a serious man, but it's, I mean, they're just filming things that they know and things that interest them. So, you know. And they're both filming John Turturro. Yeah, yeah they, I, that's that's the one thing we can, they can all agree on, is John Turturro is someone they love. When is Spike Lee going to come out with his fat suit movie? Because he's got to, like, either dress up like a, a fat mo- black mama or or at not least a, put a fat suit on. Or at least to, play like, five different characters. Yeah, to, to finish his career, he's got to, like, I want to see that movie. It's just just called Spike Lee Gets Fat. <laughs> just him in a fat suit. I'd watch that. I'm here for that. Uh, of says he already did fat. Oh, God. No, I mean, he did uh, bad. Sorry. That weirdo. Yeah. I have a question I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to wait until the final episode of this month to ask you. Thank God. <laughs> Do the right thing. Fucking phenomenal movie. The Criterion Edition is wonderful. It looks great. Ernest Dickinson had a lot to do with the transfer. And I spent an entire day watching all the bonus features and everything was... I definitely didn't do this movie any justice talking about probably, you know, I probably talked about one-eighth of the knowledge that I had about the background of this. And then I kept... There's so much, There's a making up that is great on that too that is so unlike everything, anything else that I've seen which is more about like how they went into the neighborhood and started making this movie in the neighborhood and how they had to deal with the actual community that was there. So if you get your hands on it, it's well worth it. Uh, I think I've seen, I, I maybe you might be lucky, but if you buy something from Spike Lee's online shop, he has been known to sign things occasionally. That's awesome. And he has <laughs> signed copies of Do the Right Thing and Bamboozled. That's I have awesome. not I would probably just buy them and they would just not be signed. But um, that's a, if that's a risk that you're willing to take, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to recommend buying it directly from his shop. Why do you think... Do you think it's the culture that we live in today where Jordan Peele is so praised for doing pretty much everything that Spike Lee was doing back in like the 80s and 90s, but Spike Lee got shit for it, and now... Jordan Peele's like it always falls on the culture I I think I mean I saw a comparison recently to Jordan Peele and M. Night Shyamalan where they're like obviously the third movie's gotta be the alien movie yeah and I can see that kind of comparison I think that's fair his first both their first movie well I guess Sixth Sense really isn't uh, M. Night Shyamalan's first but there was these huge breakout movies where Everything that they were saying about M. Night Shyamalan was, oh, he's going to be the next Yo, Alfred Hitchcock. Down, and it was very similar to Jordan Peele. Yeah. People that are like Spike Lee, honestly, I don't really see it yet in any, another filmmaker. I feel like I've spent my life watching Spike Lee get the shaft. Like, the guy's gotten a lot of undeserved shit throughout his entire he's career. Ne- he never got shaft. <laughs> no, but his shaft would be excellent if he did it because that remake was fucking awful but I just like I just watched this guy like get a lot of shit just for being who he is and his movies are so brilliant and it's always frustrated me to see like him not get more deserved 
praise. I think now we, we look at him and we have a different idea of him, but like people certainly didn't feel that way in like the 90s about Spike Lee. He was very controversial. Go watch it. It's a good movie. Watch it. All right. We are obviously back with the Spike Lee this time. And we got two more movies coming for you. And if you listen to this episode, because you got for two hours, you know what they are. We the next week, we're back with Sam Doozled. I'm looking forward to that one. It's been a minute since I watched that one. I'm just going to say goodbye. Bye! Twenty D energizers. Twenty C energizers. D, not C D. C energizers. D, motherfucker, D. Learn to speak English first, all right? D. How many you say? Twenty, motherfucker. Twenty. What the fuck you? Motherfucker. <laughs> motherfucker, you. You, you all right, man? You all right? Just give me the motherfucking batteries, all right? Twenty D fucking batteries. Hey, what? Yo, wait, wait, wait. What's the date on them, man? What's the date on them? The date. The fucking date. What? Can you hear? Can you fucking speak English? The date. Date. The marcha. Marcha. What are you talking about, marcha? Nineteen ninety-one. Oh, March. It's March, motherfucker. March. Yo, man, you sure that's twenty? No, man. No, no, no. Take them out, man. Count them again. Count the shits again, man.
Dago Wab, Guinea, Garlic Bread, Pizza Sling, and Spaghetti Bennett, Victor Moan, Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti, Solo Meal, Non Singer, Motherfucker. You gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken and biscuit eating, monkey ate, baboon, big guy, fast running, high jumping, spear chucking, 360 degree basketball dunking, titsoon, spade, moulinyan. Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty-eyed, me no speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York, bullshit Reverend Sun Young Moon, some Olympic 88 Korean kickboxing sabadam bitch. You Goya bean eating 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, pointy shoes, red wearing, menudo, meet a meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker, yeah, you. It's cheap. I got good for ice for you. Now catch it. How I'm doing? Chocolate, ego cream drinking, bagel and deluxe, banana for this Jew asshole. Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all take a chill. You need to cool that shit out. And that's the double truth. Fight the power! Say 
You going down the south? Word. I gotta make the deliveries and I'll check you back there, right? Rebound. Back. All right. Oh shit! Let me check it out. That's the hype. Newest, latest. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey, it was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. He's down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, there it is, love and hate. I love you, bro. Raheem, check the leg. Peace.